0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works. And for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. In a minute, you'll hear my conversation with the world's foremost monetary expert, Nathan Lewis. He'll share with us the simple but powerful formula that makes economies thrive. Why this secret formula hasn't been used, even though it's been tested for over 3,000 years? Well, we discuss that and much more. This is one conversation if you want a better future you won't want to miss. But first, when you look at the week ahead, here's what to expect more on trade. Mexico deadline comes next week. Will China negotiations get underway? Will Republicans continue to rise up against some of Trump's tariff policies? All of this will have a bearing on the stock market. The stock market believes the Federal Reserve is going to come to the rescue with a rate cut in interest rates sometime in the future. I think the markets are inhaling something that is still probably not legal in most of the country. What's going to turn the market around long term is getting these trade uncertainties out of the way. But until they do, expect a lot of volatility. Well, Nathan, uh, thank you for joining us. You've written three great books on money, probably the three best books on money in print today. But you have one out now, jargon-free, written for anyone and everyone. It's called The Magic Formula, The Timeless Secret to Economic Health and Prosperity. You make it sound so simple, but as you point out in the book, countries and states that practice that magic formula do well. When they move away from it, they start to falter or fall away entirely, which gets to the age-old question is, how do we get more prosperous? How do we create more resources, more wealth? How do we get that greater prosperity and economic security, especially in modern times? You make the point. It's taxes, low tax rates, and stable money. And you make the point too, very importantly, that if you do those two things right, it brings into train the other things that people think are critical for prosperity, such as physical discipline, property rights, individual liberty, and the like. So get those two things right, and other good things follow with it. Let's start with taxes. Why is that one of the two critical things you have to get right?
1: It's so simple, but it's so easy for governments to get it wrong without a strong economy, you've got nothing. Uh, Because without a strong economy, what do you have? Well, tax revenues are going to be weak because no one's making any money. And expenses are going to be high because you've got lots of socialistic political pressures. You've got lots of welfare payments. You have a lot of people in need. And so what do you have when revenues are weak and and spending is high? You have deficits. And then deficits go right into more taxes, as you're seeing in all these high-tax states like New York. Uh, deficits go right into more taxes and then you end up in the spiral of decline. Things just get worse
0: and worse and worse. Uh, let's uh, You uh, give examples throughout your book of history where this is not a theory. It plays out not only today, but in times past. Uh, take the example of Holland, which was a small speck of real estate in Europe. Got the money right, got the taxes right, became a global empire, the richest country in the 1600s in Europe. And then, by the time Adam Smith wrote his great book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, you make this point in your book: Holland was already on the downward slide because of raising taxes. Walk us through what happened with Holland, how it rose up, and then how it went on that decline by ignoring the magic formula.
1: Uh, exactly, um, we're already already seeing this in the U.S. today. High tax states have have poor economic performance. Low tax states have better economic performance. But a lot of people don't really recognize how common and ubiquitous this has been for the last 500 years. Uh, The story actually begins with Spain, which had this magnificent empire in the 16th century, and then toward toward the end started to tax themselves more and more and more and more. And so Holland, which was actually part of Spain at the time, uh, declared independence in a revolutionary war, a little bit like ours. They wanted lower taxes. And so they were able to split themselves off, this little country, new country, which you know, had, had nothing, right? It was mostly below sea level. Uh, yeah, literally underwater. <laughs> literally, yeah, literally underwater, or without the dikes it would be. And all the businessmen, a lot of the businessmen of Spain you know, kind of rushed into the Netherlands because now they could do business without these crazy Spanish taxes. And the other thing that Spain did is, they, is beginning right about 1600 is they started to debase the coinage, which was the old-fashioned equivalent of printing paper bills, they take the same coins and they and they stamp them with higher and higher denominations or make them out of copper and basically the value goes down. And the Netherlands didn't like that either. Uh, the Dutch didn't like it, wanted to have a different policy, and so they had staple money. They had a extremely reliable uh, gold coinage system, gold and silver coinage system, which they didn't change for hundreds of years. And this little country uh, became the master of the biggest trading empire in the world. Became the wealthiest country in Europe. Became the financial center of Europe, and also became, according to many historians, kind of the birthplace of the modern of modern capitalism. They had the first stock market since the Roman Empire. They had the the rise of banking and insurance companies, and they even had futures and options markets and all this stuff we're familiar with today, arose uh, in 17th century Holland. Well, and, and they, had a, they had a wonderful century uh, in the 17th century, but they got into some wars with England, which became the big rivals. Uh, England was also at the time pursuing a, a low tax, stable money strategy, and, and so England and Holland were becoming very competitive. And eventually they got involved in a series of wars, also with uh, Louis XIV in France, because, there was all this wealth in the netherlands and all this commerce and they really didn't have the ability to sort of military militarily defend themselves and they got in a lot of wars and they eventually got into a cycle of higher taxes originally to pay for the wars but once they had the higher taxes the economy began to suffer and businessmen began to go elsewhere and and people began to fly english flags in their ships instead of dutch flags and in the 18th century, they're basically surpassed by Britain, which had lower taxes. And in fact, Adam Smith, in, in the very famous *Wealth of Nations* from, from 1776, has a little chapter on Holland. He says, "Yep, taxes too high in Holland. Much t- lower taxes in England, and we're beating them silly."
0: And ironically, the English learned their finance on taxes and money, in part from the Dutch the great Dutch success transplanted low tax, stable money,
1: financial sophistication of the Netherlands into Britain. And so that is, that is one of the reasons why Britain was so successful in the 18th century, because they imitated the Dutch while the Dutch themselves were slowly taxing themselves into oblivion.
0: And the United States too. Hamilton learned the lesson of uh, Holland and then England. Of course, you know, the United States is a British colony.
1: And all that Adam Smith stuff, which was written in English, was very important for the formation of the United States and and, and the thinking of that time. So it was all that low tax, stable money, British stuff uh, that came to the New World while France, you know, the French Revolution was very much a revolt against the extremely high taxes of the ancient regime. And the other currencies of, of France and so forth were Germany were far less reliable So the United States followed the British model, which was originally the Dutch model, and eventually surpassed Britain to become the leading, if you want to call it an empire, the leading world
0: empire. So taxes are important because they are a burden. And if you burden people, you get less uh, creativity and productivity from them. It seems rather simple.
1: Uh, It is. And and I actually go even before the Spanish empire, I mentioned uh, Arab genius Ibn Khaldun, Khaldun, this is back in the 14th century, said at the end of the empire, tax rates are high and revenues are low. No one pays the high taxes. They're all fleeing to somewhere else. The underground economy is flourishing. Tax evasion is rampant. And eventually you can't fund the military or there's secessionist movements or there's socialist revolutions or foreign military comes in and the state, uh, the government collapses.
0: Now, it's not just ancient times. Walk us briefly through. Germany and Japan, uh, devastated by the war. They make some big changes. They not only surpass pre-war levels of production, but continue to grow at uh, what we used to call Chinese-like growth rates. Okay. And then uh, then they went off the rails. Walk us through those two countries. World War II, rubble, what did they do adopting that magic formula?
1: What really happened in, in Japan and Germany in soon after World War II, is they adopted the magic formula? They had the lowest ta- They ended up having among the lowest taxes in the developed world and the most reliable currencies. So let's take Germany because I, I re- write about it in more detail in uh, the new book, The Magic Formula. Um, if you're interested in Japan, I write about that in detail in my first book, which is called Gold: that wants The Once and Future Money. Very similar story. But the first thing that happened in Germany was you know the Allied you know. George Patton and the Russian military came in, and, and Germany became run by a military government. The military people were deciding economic policy. Well, they just fought a war, so no surprise, they were sort of, the first impulse was to sort of try to keep them down. And so they actually raised taxes in Germany. The top tax rate went from 67% to 95%. Ninety, yes, I think it was 95%. But then there was kind of a, a change in heart in the U.S., and the, the next thing they did is they, they because they, re- they didn't really get the low taxes they wanted, so they, they put all these kind of deductions and exemptions and, and stuff in the tax code, so no one would actually have to pay the 95% rate. And uh, they also stabilized the currency. In 1949, they uh, introduced the, the new Deutschmark to replace the old Reichmark, which actually descended into hyperinflation in the mid-40s or the late 40s. And so they had the, the beginnings of low taxes and stable money in Germany. And once, once they had the, once they got rid of the hyperinflation, They were also able to get rid of all these price controls and rationing and all this kind of horrible post-war stuff. Uh, And they actually got rid of it overnight. They announced on the radio, no more price controls, no more rationing, effective tomorrow morning. (laughs) And in the next 10 months, industrial production increased by over 70%. uh, (laughs) Oh, we actually get paid for working? Let's go. (laughs) Uh, So that was 1949. And the result of that tax uh, change was that revenues increased.
0: Just one other example, just to hammer home the point. You mentioned in the book South Korea, which in 1960, 61, was probably the poorest entity on earth, per capita income, $30, $50 a year, dirt, dirt poor, still hadn't recovered from the devastating Korean War in which the United States fought, South Korea. And then they adopted the magic formula Tell us what happened.
1: Exactly. You know, these Asian countries, which are now pretty successful, you know, Malaysia, Thailand, Korea, they used to be just the raw subsistence economies. They used to just muck in the mud for rice as they had done for a thousand years. Um, And then in the 60s, Korea began to industrialize, and they adopted this, uh, you know, low-tax, business-friendly environment. And the general pattern we saw among all the successful Asian countries from Japan— hundred years ago up to China to more recently, is their is tax revenue to GDP ratio was typically uh, between 10 and 20%. So Korea, Korea had that aspect going from the mid-60s through the 70s, through the 80s, uh, but it didn't have stable money. And the history of the Korean won from, from about 1965 to about 1985 is like one continuous series of, of breakdowns and disasters. Uh, so they, they, they weren't able to quite get going on that side. And then right around 1985, they were able to finally stabilize the currency. They finally had stable money, at least somewhat stable. And they had this phenomenal decade, basically 1985 to the Asian crisis in 1997-98. And after that, Korea's history is a little more spotty, but, but uh, nevertheless, they had this wonderful era of just mind-bendingly fantastic economic growth.
0: Now, um, let's go – we've been emphasizing taxes. Uh, Let's get to the – emphasize more, you've mentioned it before, but the money part. Why is the stable money so crucial to economic success? If
1: you look at what an economy is, it's people cooperating together. We often think of capitalism as being competitive, but it's really about cooperation, right? If you look at all the people who have to cooperate to make an automobile – some people talk about even a pencil, very famous example. But you have to have thousands and thousands of people putting together all the various parts in the automobile, or, or thousands of thousands of people who are involved in the production of wheat. You know, they have to make these harvesting machines and there's petroleum involved and truck transportation and all these things. And the way all this stuff is organized is through money and prices. And the way to the only way for this this coordination via money and prices to work effectively is if the price signals are not being messed up by unstable money. Um, If the price of oil goes from $20 to $100, and it's because of a shortage of oil, because I don't know, there's a revolution in Saudi Arabia or something. um, That's one thing. But if it goes to $20 to $100, simply because the value of the dollar is falling, because the Federal Reserve is being sloppy, that's a completely different thing. And if the economy reacts to the rising price of oil in the first example by reducing consumption and you know developing other sources of oil and all the things that begin to happen when the prices change, that's all good, right? Because we have a shortage of oil, we have to accommodate this somehow, uh, reduce, reduce consumption here, increase production there. But if the signal from going to 20 to 100 is simply because you're screwing with the money in it, then the same thing happens, right? People are reducing consumption here, and people are increasing production over there. But it has no, it has no real-world reason for it to be happening. It's just you're screwing up the information system that makes the economy work. It's all wasted, right? All that, in, all that, all that new investment has no real purpose. It's what the Austrians called malinvestment.
0: This gets to a, a very basic question: Why is the economics profession unable? And a lot of conservative economists, too, are unable to grasp the importance of taxes. They may, even conservatives may give lip service to it, but when they write about it, it sort of gets shuffled down the list.
1: Uh, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to
0: write this book. Both, both taxes and, and, and money. They both see taxes and money as instruments to, be, to, to manipulate the economy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Conservatives have, conservatives have not really been
1: very good on the tax thing over the years. Um, and in fact, uh, I think it's an important time now because things are so polarized in terms of political parties. But to reach out, some of us, to the independents and, and the moderate, uh, moderate liberals, because if you actually look at the history of taxes in the United States, the Democrats were behind the tax cuts all the way. Uh, we, in, we mentioned the 50s. You had a 91% top tax rate. There's some some Democrats say think that was the greatest thing in the world, but it actually wasn't that great. But who was president then? Eight years of Eisenhower. Didn't get a tax cut. Who cut the taxes? Kennedy cut the taxes. Top rate went to 70%. Um, who cut the taxes next? Well, Reagan was president in 1981, but the the first Reagan tax cut actually got a majority of Democratic votes in Congress. And without those Democratic votes, it wouldn't have passed. Democrats had a majority in Congress. The next uh, major Reagan tax cut, 1986, the top rate came down to 28%. Who was behind that? Well, it was actually introduced by uh, Bill Bradley, a Democrat from New Jersey. And the bill passed the Senate 97 to 3, including virtually every Democrat, obviously. So all the way along the all all the way along the line, uh, Democrats have been in support of pro-growth tax reforms, and it's very simple reason why, you know, because they were there when taxes were ninety-one percent. You know what happened? People who didn't pay taxes didn't have a job, <laughs> and the only way they could they could make things better for the let's say if the lower fifty percent of the income is their is their constituency, the only way they could make things better for them is for people to make more jobs. And it was very obvious at the time, because they were living under those regimes, very obvious at the time that this wasn't helping job creation in the economy in the United States.
0: What happened during the 30s where the belief in the idea that manipulating money is a shortcut to wealth, a shortcut of dealing with a crisis like a depression downturn, how did that take hold? And after the war, we wanted both the gold standard, and money manipulation at the same time. Split personality. Walk us through that because even though it's history, if we don't understand how we got here. We're going to continue to go in the same rut.
1: What happened in the 1930s basically is you got a dramatic rise in taxes worldwide. The first rise in taxes was tariffs. Virtually every country in the world had retaliatory, retaliatory tariffs. So all around the world they had this tremendous trade war and not very surprisingly there was a recession you know, this was not really it's not the great depression not a total disaster but just a recession and then what happened kind of throughout the developed world the reaction uh, in some places in the united states was more spending right the reaction in some other places was less spending but one thing they all shared in general was as the recession ha- took hold tax revenues went down sometimes there's more spending deficits went up welfare spending in some countries, like Britain, went up, so they had big deficits. And as they looked into these big deficits, unfortunately, conservatives, mostly conservative governments, raised taxes. So now you've got huge domestic tax hikes. And rather famously, in the United States, uh, Herbert Hoover kicked out his genius Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, who reduced tax rates from 73% to 25%, the top tax income tax rate. Kicked him out, got rid of Mellon. And then moved the top income tax rate back from twenty-five percent to sixty-three percent. And also often forgotten, there was an enormous burst in excise taxes, which is basically like sales taxes, you know, taxes on things like cigarettes or
0: movie tickets.
1: Well, you can probably imagine what happened to the economy. It got worse, and Hoover didn't get reelected, that's for sure. And a similar thing was happening worldwide. In Britain, uh, Britain already had high taxes in the nineteen twenties, and there was this gigantic tax hike in nineteen thirty-one or thirty-two, where I, I According to one estimate, the, the 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 tax liability on an upper middle class family of five uh, went up by 360. <laughs> percent. This is going on all over the world. One me? of the worst offenders was Germany, and one of the worst offenders was Germany. The German Parliament said, "Let's cut taxes. We have a recession. Let's let's reduce taxes and get the economy going." And but the the Chancellor actually uh, took this war powers act in their in their constitution and said, "No." <laughs> I think we should raise taxes. And so he actually overruled the, the parliament uh, and raised tax in Germany. It was a disaster there, just like it was in Britain, just like it was in the United States. So this is kind of what was going on in the early 1930s. But the economics profession didn't really get it. They didn't get the low taxes thing or, or, the, or the destructive potential of high taxes. And so basically said, well, we don't know what to do, so we'll devalue the currency. Maybe it'll help. <laughs> This whole idea that you can make everything better from magic devaluation uh, doesn't really have a whole lot of historical uh, support, but the idea is still with us today.
0: You make the point on uh, money that the best way for stable money is a gold standard, but it's encrusted in myth. So why gold? I know you've written books on it, so but I know you got to reduce it to a tweet now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: ultimately gold is just the means to achieve stable money. What you really want is stable money. You want money that's not changing in value. And if you if you look back at what people used to say in the 19th century when this was really very cornerstone of, of statesmanship, they understood this. They understood what we want is, is a currency that's not doing goofy things. And the way we achieve that is with gold, which has been proven over centuries of history to more or less approximate but approximate pretty closely in a very satisfying way, this ideal of stable money. And it was working great in the 60s, right? It's not like it stopped working. It was working great. Um, Gold itself is just a metal. Um, It's important to understand what the the goal is, stable money, why that goal is important. You're not messing up the signals of the economy with monetary instability. Um, And to see that gold is how traditionally this goal was achieved, when something works for centuries and you know the 1960s were working better than ever,
0: uh, it's probably because it's a good thing. So basically, for a variety of reasons, geological, you can't get a big surge in production of gold because of the geology of it, peculiar geology of it and mining it. So it keeps its intrinsic value better than anything else. Money has a fixed value. So quickly deal if you could – with some of the myths of the of, of gold. Let's start with it caused or prolonged the Great Depression. That, that's the one they always throw up.
1: I think it's important to understand that there's a variety of views of the Great Depression. None of them blame the gold standard itself for the Great Depression. None of them say, oh, it didn't work and it caused this problem. If you actually look at what the Keynesian view is, uh, which is still today the most prominent view, they said that there's a reduction in aggregate demand from unspecified causes. They didn't know. It was tariffs and taxes, but they didn't know. And to deal with it, we want to devalue the currency. Now, they weren't blaming they weren't blaming the gold standard, but they said, well, uh, we have 20% unemployment. Let's do something. So so, so
0: they felt that the gold standard didn't cause the depression, but was standing in the way of a-
1: Of their devaluation.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: And, and it's important to recognize that in the United States, we devalued from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce. But we didn't leave the gold standard. We stuck at 35 uh, until 1971. So even if you are, you know, I say, you know, once a century, you get in yourself in a heap of trouble and you got to value, okay, you know, 20 to 35, but stay on the gold standard. Right? Don't just become a floating currency.
0: Now, another rap is that the uh, gold standard would hurt the poor, even though it enables a growing economy. You can still have a welfare state with stable money, as Bismarck showed in Germany back in the 1880s. Uh, Exactly. Um, I'm not sure where this hurting the poor story comes from
1: because, you know, I think jobs help the poor and stable money helps create jobs. It probably goes back to the 1890s when there were various arguments to devalue the currency even then. Because of and the distress in the farm belt. There's a distress in the farm belt. Uh, there are a lot of family farms in those days. And a lot of people had mortgages on their farms because it was a huge expansion of farm production in those days. And when people open up new land to production, they often go in to take on some debt. And so um, there were some arguments in those days to basically devalue the currency, which would effectively lighten those debt loads and, and effectively raise the nominal selling prices of, of farm products. So, you know, the the small farmer might have been considered the the poor
0: in those days. Now, another myth is that, uh, gee, there's not enough gold to back the dollar. Right. There's a lot of talk about, oh, not enough gold. And unfortunately,
1: the gold standard guys have been bad at this as the floating currency advocates. Somewhere along the line, they got the idea that you you had to have what's called a 100% reserve system. Right. And nothing like... Uh, there actually are some examples of a 100% reserve system. But for the most part, you never had this
0: 100% reserve stuff. So getting to, the, getting to some conclusions, there's never been an economy in history that has high-taxed its way to prosperity.
1: Yeah, you can't tax yourself to prosperity. I think Winston Churchill said that. And everything we've done in the last 100 years has proven it's true. And All- no country is devalued. And no, you can't devalue yourself to prosperity. Prosperity. What happens when you devalue? Well, the effective value of wages goes down, right? Mexico devalues what happens to the Mexican worker, right? The value of their peso wages goes down. Well, you can't get rich by getting poorer. (laughs) No No one's ever been able to create wealth and prosperity just by playing funny money games.
0: Why is it that stable money always gets hit from time to time with the funny money people?
1: Yeah, if you... This had this big resurgence in the 1930s of the idea you can monkey with the macro economy by fooling with the currency. But actually, the the history of it goes all the way back to the Greeks. Uh, They were also occasionally playing games with their coinage. And they learned way back before the birth of Christ that uh, there are consequences involved. So you you don't do that.
0: (laughs) Say a few words about uh, the latest iteration of this funny money uh, monster called modern monetary theory, which even conservatives seem to be uh, enamored with. Uh,
1: modern monetary theory, yes, it's a it's an idea that that pops up again and again and again. Um, in part because it's partially true. In the the modern modern meaning the last three hundred years, the modern money creation process of banknotes typically does today provide some advantage to the government in terms of financing when the Federal Reserve, you know, all the all the paper bills, for example, or your, in your pocket, have to come from somewhere, and the Federal Reserve doesn't just make those for free. You know, he takes it takes something in return. The way it takes in return is government bonds. So, as the gov- Federal Reserve gov- takes government bonds off the market and gives you banknotes in return, in effect, to summarize, uh, those government bonds sort of sort of disappear. It help, it helps the government with its financing needs. Um, so there's some truth to that. And that's always been true. It's been true for 300 years. But the reason it works is because the Federal Reserve is not just saying, oh, here's some money to pay for the Green New Deal. It's it's theoretically, we hope, trying to give the economy the amount of money it needs to function and no more and no less. Eventually, uh, there's always some advisor close to the ear of power that says, you know what? Let's just print money and pay bills. And this has always been true, always been that person. Um, it was there in France in the late 19th century, or late 18th century. It was there in Germany in
0: the 1920s. What do you see for the future? You have the magic formula. Uh, hopefully your book will enlighten some people, but it uh, might not. What, what, what do you see? How do you see this playing out?
1: I think actually we're at sort of a, the early beginnings of a new era for the United States, if you look at U.S. policy over the last few decades, it's been real static. There were some big, important moves in the 80s, but then from about 1990 to the present, we're kind of like duking it out over little things. There was actually an idea in the 1990s, uh, the flat tax, popularized by certain presidential candidates, became enormously popular throughout the world. Over 30 governments introduced a flat tax, gigantically successful. But we can't get, can't get anything going in the United States we have kind of been in a stasis. Uh, but I think, you know, n- nothing lasts forever and certainly stasis doesn't last forever. And I think we're starting to see movements to a new era. And the the left side, the democrat side, they're pounding the table for what they want. They want crazy Bernie Sanders socialism with 70 or percent or higher tax rates and you know, free everything. <laughs> Everything's free. And I think that we might go in that direction, but I hope that conservatives will, will present an alternative view. And the alternative view is not just we keep everything the way it is, but the alternative view is we, if we have a new vision of our own, which involves a much smaller federal government, much lower taxes, and a much more rational tax system. If we don't have this crazy
0: and one income tax. And one thing to emphasize is that smaller government does not mean a lack of safety nets. You can have very effective safety nets on employment insurance, food stamps, health insurance. So it's not throwing people out on the streets. It's very important to get across.
1: Oh, exactly. Uh, if you look at, we were mentioning some of the great success stories uh, of the last 60 years since the end of World War II, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, um, they all had safety net systems. They all had, uh, you know, welfare systems. Uh, but but uh, as Zoffman said, there was no one in the safety net. <laughs> Unemployment rate in Japan in the '60s was well, 1.5. Um, there was there was a welfare system, but nobody had it, was on it. So, I think the model going forward for the U.S., uh, which we can achieve politically, is is something like that, where you have you have a lot of the present services like public education and, and perhaps welfare for people get into trouble. But the overall size of the government, the overall tax revenue GDP, which is now about 26%, I think, is more like, let's say, 17
0: or 18%. Great. Nathan, thank you very much. Thank you. So the book, again, is The Magic Formula, The Timeless Secret to Economic Health and Prosperity. Hopefully, with your book's uh, sales and circulation, it'll no longer be a secret. <laughs> thank you. Here are my reads for the week. The first one is called Stop Feeding College Bureaucratic Bloat. It's about tying loans to the ratio between college administrative costs and full-time faculty. In other words, with the rise of federal aid, there's been a direct correlation between administrative costs of colleges. They're much, much too high. Philip Hamburger, law professor at Columbia, makes the point Students shouldn't have to bear the full cost of those loans. Colleges should have, as they say, skin in the game. You can find this on the Wall Street Journal, wsj.com. My next one is that interview over a week ago, but still highly relevant, even though it's been overshadowed by now with headlines about Europe and trade and everything else. But there was a fascinating interview with Attorney General William Barr on CBS News You can read the transcript or go online and hear the interview and see the interview itself. It's with Attorney General William Barr. It was done by Jan Crawford of CBS News. You can find it on cbsnews.com. Barr, in this interview, has explosive statements about alleged spying, about what happened behind the Russian collusion story. I'm amazed it didn't get more coverage, but you should read it because this is going to be big headline stuff in the months ahead. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.